and we're taking this teaching out of Matthew chapter 5, which interestingly is the first recorded place where Jesus uh, has a teaching that is in the scripture. Um, So I think it's a pretty important scripture, and I think the words he begins with probably give us a pretty good idea of of what he's about to do in his three-year ministry as it begins here on planet Earth, and he begins with what we call uh, nowadays the Beatitudes, and they're a set of different sayings, and we're on the third one, but let me read the first ones here. The first one he gives to us are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, these things were all completely upside down, because the people hearing Jesus, his own disciples would have been like, Jesus, that's not how the world works. What, what are you talking about? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Next one is, blessed are those who mourn, uh, for they will be comforted. And we spent some time looking at those two. And then um, the last couple weeks and this week again, we return to blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And these are all head scratchers to Jesus' disciples because they're thinking, Jesus, really? I mean, I know this is your first teaching, so maybe you'll kind of step it up a little bit. You seem really smart, and you've got great things that you do, like miracles and, and other places where, I mean, you're amazing. Jesus, you're amazing. But this is not how the world works, Jesus. And so here we are, uh, looking again at uh, a short one, Blessed Are the Meek. And I'll have to be honest with you. Um, Well, let me back it up this way just to let you a little bit in our process. Lots of pastors, like I've got a friend, I've got a few friends that they go away at the beginning of the year. They plan out their sermons and sermon series for the entire year. You know, they spend a couple days out doing that. And, you know, there's some flex in it, but, um, but pretty much that's where they end up going. And I wish I could do that. I've tried to do that. We actually do that. It just usually ends up going a different direction um, because of a variety of things. This year, um, coronavirus kind of, you know, <laughs> uh, gave us a re-shift re of course for a while. Um, but when Jim and I sat down and we mapped these out, we thought, you know, probably each one of these is going to take, you know, uh, a week. Maybe some of them we'll need to spend a couple weeks on. But I promise you that I never thought of all of them that we would spend more than one Sunday talking about blessed are the meek. I mean, it seems pretty straightforward, pretty simple, pretty easy. Blessed are the meek. In fact, that one seems so simple, maybe we'll do two. We'll squeeze two of them in that week. Blessed are the meek, right? That shouldn't be, it won't be that hard. Um, but, But what happens for me and for Jim as well is when we do these messages, we don't just wanna give information out to people. We're not just here to try to give you a three points, an outline, and a fill in the blank, and here's a... Here's a little a practical application. Um, and practical applications are very, very important, by the way. But there's not really a formula that we stick to and go, well, that's what we got this one. Now we've got to hurry up and get to next week's sermon. Um, because, uh, at least for me, I know that God has, has me wrestle through this stuff before I can actually teach it. And many of these things he's been wrestling me through and shaping and teaching me through many, many years and many experiences. So... Uh, Like the series that we're in and this particular beatitude, blessed are the meek, um, the more we've looked at it, the more I've just had to look at my own life, my own um, understanding of what it means to be blessed are the meek. Because again, we could just rush past this one, Um, but we we did. We covered it uh, last week. We talked about blessed are the meek. Um, Jim talked about it the week before. But again, part of why I think we need to come back for this week and maybe another week is, 
is it's so easy to run past these statements of Jesus that were incredibly important, but we just hear them as kind of little cliches. At least I do. Like, it's a little cliche, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Sounds kind of interesting-ish, maybe not that interesting. Let's get to the next one. What's the next one? And we'll get to the next one, uh, but not this week. Um, And so, real quick recap. Um, Contrary to what our culture believes that meekness is, like our culture thinks that meek is, it rhymes, meek is weak, right? So contrary to that, um, meek is not weak. Meek is not passive. Meek is not someone who's been beaten down and can no longer look someone else in the eye. Uh, That's not meek. And so last week, we looked at the Greek language, which the New Testament was written in. We looked at uh, some scriptures. um, And the word pictures for the word meek were very helpful to me. There were three images. I'm just going to touch on them, and then we'll uh, move into the next part here. But the first one was a gentle breeze. Meekness is not weakness. It's, It's a gentle breeze. Uh, Meekness is uh, soothing medicine. Um, That's what meekness is. So you meet a meek person, they're not weak. They're going to be a gentle breeze in your life. They'll be cool medicine, soothing medicine. Maybe when you need the medicine most, they're going to be there to bring a gentleness, a kindness. Maybe your heart is broken. You want to run into somebody that is a, a soothing medicine or a cool breeze. But the third one that really has my attention, the third metaphor um, and picture that is used and phrase is that meek is power under control. And we looked at how uh, a horse is um, very powerful, but if you own a horse and it has not been trained or, or tamed, then it's not much use. It might be even destructive, but meekness is a word they would use to describe a horse that has been now trained Still powerful, but it works with their owner to channel that power in helpful ways. And my mind's a little odd, and so I started thinking, what are some other animals that have to kind of keep their power under control? And um, I remembered, I reminded, it reminded me of something I read once from John Orberg in um, his book, Everyone's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. Is that just says a mouth, right? That just says a lot right there. Everyone's normal until you get to know them. And early in the book, uh, he talks about the porcupine. <laughs> and he's, he says that we, human beings, we are a lot like the porcupine. Um, the porcupine has over 30,000 quills attached to their bodies. Each quill can be driven deeply into an enemy. And the recipient of that quill, um, your body heat, if you get you know, a quill of a porcupine, your body heat will actually help that barb to expand inside of you to become fully embedded, and you think, okay, that's some power, right? 30,000 of those in a little, how big are they, like this big? I've seen a couple in the wild. Andy, how big? Is this about right? Yeah, like that? Okay, there you go. Do we have porcupines in Arizona? We do. All right, we've got stories, I bet, later. Um, So now as a general rule, porcupines have two methods for um, addressing relationship. They're fairly solitary creatures, funny, right? Um, There is withdrawal, uh, and there is also um, um, attack, right? They're going to head for the hills, or they are going to lock and load. That's how a porcupine works. Withdrawal and attack. Does that sound like anybody you know? Does it sound like any of us? Maybe, maybe, sometimes, maybe. Um, Don't point at the person next to you. Don't do that. Mom, don't do that. No, don't do that. Don't do that. She didn't do that. Now, one problem... (laughs) 
that is fairly seems obvious, at least to me, that, that for the porcupine, if they don't control their power, their arsenal of quills, um, they won't last long. And as a species, even more so, porcupines, they have to control their powerful arsenal if they even want to survive as a species, right? You following me here, Todd? I think just, I mean, what kind of delicate mating ritual must go on with, with the porcupine, right? Can, can you imagine the voiceover on a nature documentary, right? In the late autumn, a young porcupine's thoughts turn to love, the female porcupine. The female porcupine is only open to uh, dinner and a movie once a year. And a girl porcupine's no is the most widely respected turndown in all of the animal kingdom, right? <laughs> if anybody makes the documentary, please let me know. I'd love to be a part. Um, where was I? Okay, power under control. So you and I have a ton of power. Each one of us, like the porcupine, we carry our little arsenal of quills, and the barbs that we carry have names like rejection, condemnation, judgment, resentment, arrogance, selfishness, envy, and contempt. And I'm just naming the ones I struggle with. That's a short list. And for us as people to get close to someone else, in order for us to have healthy relationships, we do need to learn to temper our sharp edges, to lay down our quills, to keep our power, as it were, under control, because even if a person in our world has lots of power, lots of position, lots of, you know, a high level of authority, if their power is disordered, they will end up very lonely, very empty, no matter what it looks like from the outside. And so learning about this kind of meekness that Jesus teaches, it will help us, I believe, to avoid flinging quills at others when the barbs come our way. <sighs> And when they come our way, wouldn't it be something if we learned to more of the time, more of the time absorb those insults, those stabs, those attacks, absorb them without lashing out or striking back? See, because um, it might be easier to live life and not get close to someone that has quills, but the problem is we all have them. We all have the capacity to attack other people. And so to follow Jesus into what it means to be meek, I think it would mean, the good news is, that more of the time we would learn to give grace to someone who wrongs us. More of the time, because I don't think we're going to get perfect at it. More of the time, what if we learn to not hold a grudge when we're offended, when we're hurt? Um, let me just ask very pointedly, are we willing to be patient with imperfect people? I mean, it's on our sign, right, outside. No perfect people allowed, so it's all imperfect people, every one of us. Ephesians 4.2 would be a pretty good verse for, for us to put next to that. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. You don't have to bear with someone in love if there's not some difficulty there. Am I right? Is that, does that sound like it makes sense right there? See, because no human being is perfect except for Jesus. No human being is perfect. Your spouse, if they have not, will let you down. Your friends will disappoint. Your family will let you down. Um, and that includes your church family. We will fail you. And I promise you, your pastor will fail to meet all your expectations. He'll 
fail to say the things that you think he needs to say or should say the way you would like him to say it. And believe me, no matter which side of the aisle you're voting on between now and the election, one, um, one of our uh, pastor mentors said, if you don't have some people mad at you in your church, then you might be missing the challenge of the gospel. So <laughs> here we go, right? Um, but, but no matter where it is that the hurt comes from, there's a place and a time where each of us get hurt and when we come to the crossroads of being lashed out at or poked or struck or that arrow pierces your heart, that's the crossroad of meekness, and that's where you and I get to decide which path will I take. Will I take the path to strike back at that person with pain and punishment, where I use my power to let them have it, or um, will we take a greater path, the path of grace, of gentleness, of meekness, Will I grant grace to people or will I go down that other path and launch my quills of condemnation and try to get even, let them have it? And I think this is part of where meekness comes in, especially because when you do have the power to lash out, to strike back, to get even, to teach someone a lesson, and instead you choose and I choose, um, instead of giving someone what they deserve, we choose power under, we choose power that's under control. Instead of lashing out power over at someone. And part of why I wanted to talk about this at least for one more week here is because when, when I hear blessed are the meek, it gets really easy for me, like I said before, it sounds like a religious saying or some kind of little mantra or cliche that's far too easy to just touch on it and go, great, covered that next one. But for me, I'm learning that, that it's not an easy one for me to observe or to live out or to practice. The meekness is not easy for me at all. And so I listen to lots of sermons, and I don't know about you guys, but, but when we preachers don't get practical or give some kind of um, examples of what we're talking about, we're just spouting, I think, you know, information, which is fine for a seminary class, but I don't know that that's the best use of a Sunday morning when we gather together, I don't want more information stuffed in my head. I want more information, but if it's just information, then I think we can just kind of do what I tend to do sometimes, where I'm just going to skip past this thing and go on to the next deal. Um, because I think that Jesus might be challenging us as a people, because I know he's challenging and inviting me into learning more deeply what meekness actually means. So a couple practical examples I want to look at this morning. Um, one example is from the life of Abraham, Abraham in Genesis chapter 13. Now, um, this is the part of the story in Genesis 13 where Abraham has already, he's still Abram actually, hasn't had his name changed. So he's been called into a land that he didn't know he was supposed to follow God, so he did. And he brought his nephew, a guy named Lot, along with him. Genesis 13 says they were both very blessed very wealthy. In fact, they had so many flocks and animals and herds and people with them that the land they were in could not support both of them with all the flocks and herds. And so Genesis 13, verse 8, we'll pick it up. It says this, so Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are close relatives. And the story is then Abram says, hey, let's just split up, right? One of us is going to take the land to the east, and one of us will take the land over here to the west. Um, now, here's where it got interesting, because Abram had all the power here. 
He had all the power. He could do whatever he wanted. He was older, which in that culture gave him the right to choose first. Uh, He was the leader of this whole expedition. Abram was the one that God had called in the first place and made the promises to. So Abram would have had the right to push back and pick whatever land he wanted um, and send Lot to the other one. Instead, he gave his nephew, the younger one, Lot, he gave him first choice of the land. He says, Lot, okay, you choose. And, and this strikes me because Abraham demonstrates for us meekness right here. When he could have made it about himself, about his rights, about his destiny. And I think part of why he does this is that he just doesn't want the quills to fly. He, he doesn't want the disunity. He doesn't want um, to be fighting with Lot about who deserves what. And so instead of trusting in his rights, which he had, instead of trusting in his position, which he had, instead of trusting even in his privilege, instead of trusting in all that which he could have done, Abraham trusts God. And as a result, he puts the interests of Lot ahead of his own interests. And when I was reading through this and looking at this passage, it just made me stop and wonder in my own life, Um, and maybe this is a question for you to ask in your life as well, where's there a place in my life where maybe I have some sort of power or influence or position or title, maybe I have some rights or privilege, but instead of demanding my rights, because I've earned it, right? I have the power, right? I, I have the power in this situation. I'm the boss, I'm the parent, I'm the whatever, Instead of grasping onto that, instead of that, I say, okay, God, I'm going to let the other person choose. I'm going to let them go first. I'm going to listen to them first. I'm not going to insist on getting my own way. Because saying that is like Abram did. It's saying, really, God, okay, I trust you so much that I'm going to put the power that I have, I'm going to put that power in your hands. I'm going to trust you instead of my own way, my own means. And after I wrote that, (laughs) I had to get even more honest because part of what bugs me, you know situations like that where where you have the right to do something and take something or be, you have the right to do it, right? And then, okay, 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 I step back. And part of what bugs me about those kinds of situations where maybe it's even around some conflict is that I'm worried that the person that I give the advantage to, that they just think they've fooled me, right? They've tricked me, like I'm some kind of idiot. I mean, don't you think in this story here that Lot knew he was taking advantage of Abram? He knew it, right? I think he totally knew it. And Abram, he was no dummy. He knew what he was doing. And what he was doing, what Abram knew he was doing, regardless of whether Lot gets it or not, Abram was trusting God to work it out, even if he got cheated, even if he got slighted. Think of a business deal, maybe. Maybe you've been in a business deal or, 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 or in some kind of partnership, or maybe money was involved somewhere with someone else, and you got raked over the coals, <laughs> And it, it should not have gone that way. And it was wrong. And you could have chased that person down. And maybe, some, by the way, sometimes we need to, right? And I'll get to that in a second. But, but sometimes we need to step back and say, okay, God, 
I'm going to trust you even if I get cheated here because I have the right to strike back at that person, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to do it. Uh, I think of um, some friends of mine who've gone through divorce and got a very unfavorable, very unfair kind of settlement. I mean, completely not even imaginable how it worked out that way. Um, and sometimes I'm like, man, they should, needed to stand up for themselves right there. But some of them I've watched, and they have such a sense of peace. Like, you know what? Okay. God, I'm going to trust you with the raw deal. I'm not going to keep being angry and wishing bad things on this person. I'm going to trust you to work it out, God. You're ultimately my provider, so no matter how bad this deal this settlement, this job situation, whatever it is with you, trusting God, God, will you work it out? Will you work it out? Now, by the way, let me say this again, because I don't think we just are supposed to lay down and just be doormats, right? I don't think that's at all what God intends. So this, I think, makes it really important for us to learn to walk with God and hear his voice. Because when these situations come up, there's not a cookie-cutter answer for the whole deal. There's a general practice of heart, which is meekness, that may lead us one direction or the other. It may lead us to do exactly what Abram did and just leave it to them and let them choose, um, not insist on getting our own way, um, trusting God so much that we know it's in his hands. Um, But it also helps if we can hear God speaking to us. And when he nudges us to do that thing that we go, oh my, what? I I don't want to do that. God, are you sure? Um, We can be confident that that even if we take that move that we sense him nudging us to, when we hear him guide us, if we do that, we're trusting that no matter how this works out, God, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting in you. And for us to live that way, for me to live that way, would take meekness. Especially if I can influence the outcome, it would take meekness, which is power under control. Now, interesting, the next one I want to look at here. Um, There's only two people in the Bible who are called meek. One's in the Old Testament, one's in the New Testament. Anybody want to guess who the Old Testament person was? It's not Abraham. Moses, yes. New Testament. This is an easy answer, right? Right, Who? Jesus. There we go. Usually that's the instant answer. If we were in Sunday school and I asked a question, the answer would have been Jesus on both of them, right? So... um, Right, right. So the only people in the Bible that are actually called meek, doesn't mean the other people weren't meek, but they are noticed for their meekness, Moses and Jesus. Now, neither Moses nor Jesus were meek, weak kinds of men. They weren't weak, right? We think, if you think of meek as still weak and soft and passive, um, Moses and Jesus, neither of them were weak men. They were very strong, uh, maybe even what we would call masculine types of men with with appropriate masculine strength, not the kind of masculine strength that damages, but that brings healing, protection, wholeness. Both of these men are two of the most, I guess they're two of the most powerful men in all of history. I guess we'd have to say Jesus would be the most powerful man in all of history, right? Um, And Moses would be, if we look at all the men in history, he's probably up there as well. Very powerful, but they were also described as meek, so they were men who knew how to keep their power under control. They knew how to use the power and influence they were given, not for themselves, but for the sake of others. And that's why they're called meek. It's so interesting 
that this is probably the last thing that most modern day and in history leaders would ascribe to be known for, meekness. But if you were to look at examples of great leaders in history, there we see it. So there's actually the passage where he's called meek. It's in Numbers 12. There's a story of uh, Moses and Miriam and Aaron. This is um, his sister and his brother. And what's happening in this scenario here is that, that Moses' sister and brother, who've been with him for, you know, their life, but, but have been leading the people with him. They are wandering in the desert, but they are past the exodus. They are in, you know, this next season of life. But they begin questioning the leadership of Moses and the authority of Moses as God's chosen spokesperson for the people of Israel while they are being delivered and, and wandering now the desert before entering the promised land. So... Verse 1, Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite, um, so essentially they didn't like that he had married a black woman. Verse 2, has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? Love this next sentence. And the Lord heard this, like, uh-oh, right? If the sentence is, and the Lord heard this, which you know he hears everything anyway, but if it mentions it, like, uh-oh, there's gonna be a problem here, right? Um, you don't want that one appearing in your story, and the Lord heard this, right? Um, verse three then, and here's where it is. So they're complaining, God hears it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Now that's saying something, Meek more than all people who were on the face of the earth? I mean, again, think of this. Moses was not a wimpy, passive man. No weakling could have ever stood up to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time, against the superpower of the world in Egypt, the powerhouse of the known world. He could not have stood up to him if he was somehow passive. Um, No weak, passive person, if that's what meek meant, (laughs) Um, A meek, passive person, if it meant weak, um, they couldn't lead a million people out of Egypt through the desert in Sinai for 40 years with all the mumbling and grumbling and criticism and all the stuff that the people of Israel did in the story. So no, no, we know that Moses is a mighty, courageous, powerful man with authority, genuine authority, not fake authority, genuine authority. And he was not impressed by the power or authority that he had because he knew where that power came from. And he knew, get this, he knew what it was for. He knew the authority was not for him. He knew what it was for. It was for the people he led. Now, here's what happens in the story. The Lord, right, hears Miriam's and Aaron's insults. And so God calls all three of them, Moses and Aaron and Miriam. I want you, I want you to meet you at the tent of meeting again. This is going to be a scolding, right? Uh, You three, come meet me at the tent of meeting. So they go, and God calls Miriam and Aaron to stand forward and addresses them and basically gives them a good scolding, leaving no doubt about his choice that Moses is going to be the spokesperson. Moses is going to be the clear leader here. And then just to make it super clear, interesting, we could have a talk on Old Testament and all this fun, but God then doesn't just scold them. He causes Miriam to be covered with leprosy. And I've never heard anybody else say this, but 
And I kind of wonder if he's like, oh, okay, Miriam, so you think white skin's better? How's this for white skin right here? <laughs> like, leprosy, right? Now, Moses, can you imagine being in that moment, being Moses? He's been undermined. He's been betrayed by his own family, right? They question him. They question his leadership. They question his authority. Moses doesn't take matters into his own hands, right? He lets God handle it. He doesn't try to defend himself or justify his position or attack them for their jealousy. He leaves it in God's hands. But I think this next part here is the most amazing part of why he's known as a meek man, this power under control. Instead of Moses do doing what I would be tempted to do, which would be to respond with kind of self-righteousness or maybe even this boast at being vindicated and be like, ha, that'll teach you guys for trying to mess with me. Instead, look at this in verse 13. Here's what happens. And Moses, cries out to the, Moses cried out to the Lord, oh God, please heal her, please. Like he's pleading with God. They say it twice. Please heal her, God, please. And I just, it blows me away. I think about what this shows here. This is what godly meekness and actual authentic leadership look like here. See, meekness doesn't take pleasure in the punishment of other people. Even when they're reaping what they sowed because of what they sowed on me and wronged me with. Ooh, like that would be true strength. I mean, think about this. How much strength and secure confidence would it take not to react? Are you with me? How, how much strength, how much confidence in, in who God says you are and in just security in his call on, would it take for you not to react? That would take an amazing amount of strength. That is true strength. That is power under control. And so let me ask you, can you think of someone who has cheated you, wronged you, gossiped about you, hurt you, dishonored you, disrespected you, maybe gossiped and slandered or said unfair things about you, someone who has really just gone after you? I mean, people can be really awful. Sometimes the people we are kind to can be very awful. I have a friend that recently allowed somebody to move in. Um, um, this person needed, another person needed a place to stay. The person that let him, the, uh, the person move in, um, their friend move in with him, um, was barely making rent as it was, but didn't ask for any financial help, just knew this other person needed a place to stay. And after a couple few months of this, when um, the original person said, hey, I'm going to be moving out, um, found out that that other person had damaged their reputation, had said and done unthinkable things, and just hit it the whole time in order to take advantage of. Like, people do awful things, and something rises up in me, and I want to go, that is not okay. And it's not okay. And if I was this guy, I would want revenge on the person that has done this because it's not okay. Um, that's evil. It's, it's wicked stuff to be used that way. Um, or, or think of somebody who has stabbed you in the back. Think of that maybe even family member who's estranged or just kind of works behind the system and they smile to your face all the time, but, but you know that behind the scenes, 
it's not real. It's not real, and, and you wish you could even catch them sometimes, or maybe you did catch them, and life is just disappointing. There will be betrayal like that. And so as I was wrestling through these power, um, the, these pictures of meekness and, and power that's under control, I mean, I thought of somebody in my own life yesterday who I thought of this person who had betrayed me long ago, um, and in that moment, uh, it, was, it was pretty ugly. It was pretty bad. Actually said things about me and predicted, you know, hey, this is what's going to happen in your life because you are such a this and that. Um, it was pretty awful. And um, thank God that, that God worked some things out and some grace in my own life so that my life turned out very differently. And, and this other person, actually, if you look at where their life is at right now, it's kind of a train wreck. It's actually really sad, um, really bad and it's tempting to think, and I'll be honest, at times I have thought like, well, there you go. They reaped what they sowed. They got what they deserved. I didn't have to do anything about it because it just works that way. They got what they deserved. But you know what? Looking at this passage, I have to tell you that any sense of self-righteous satisfaction quickly evaporates away when I think, well, he got what he deserved, didn't he? Um, because it's not satisfying. Seeing that maybe like, oh, finally, justice was served. It doesn't work long-term. It doesn't work long-term. It doesn't work, not for those of us that want to align with the heart that God says he's planted within us. Because friends, meek people, followers of Jesus, they will have a heart just like Moses did um, that doesn't take pleasure in the misfortune of others. Somebody else does poorly, gets what they deserve. We don't take pleasure in that. We don't. Just like Moses, we don't take pleasure in that because we know that we too are utterly dependent on the grace of God. Is that not true? You and I are utterly dependent on his grace. So when somebody gets what's coming to them, eventually we need to let go and not relish in that because meekness means we're putting that in God's hands. It's his deal. So you and I, we are powerful people. God has created us in his image. He has given us a will. He's given us many, many things, influence. One of the things he's given us is a choice. And the choice that's before us when it comes to the person who's betrayed you, if you have that situation or situations in your mind, our choice is this. We can live our life constantly disappointed in people and all of their problems and all their betrayals where we end up really angry with everybody around us and we don't trust anyone and we hope they get what's coming to them, we can live that way. Or we can live life the way Jesus is inviting us to. I'm gonna call it, we'll be armed with the advantage of meekness. We can live resentful or we can let that go. We can live armed with the advantage of meekness which is power under control. And so as I did yesterday, um, it makes me wonder, maybe for some of us, is there a place in our life where someone wronged you instead of getting back at them or wishing for them to be served justice or revenge? What if I go that extra step like Moses and I begin to pray for God's mercy to fall upon them? Like, like, like Moses, what if I pray, okay, heal him, God. 
heal her, heal them. I'm still hurt. I'm still mad. It still stings maybe in your story, but you say, okay, God, heal them. Not not just, okay, God, I want to forgive them. That's good too. (laughs) God, heal them, heal them. That's really tricky. But again, if we believe what Jesus says, then we see that this is an advantage to live that way. We are armed with the advantage of meekness. Uh, We're getting low on time here, so... um, Next week, I'm going to spend some time talking about Jesus and the way he modeled meekness. But let me just kind of see what I can get in a couple minutes here before I move to our close. Because um, I did mention that there were only two people in the Bible that were described as meek. There's Moses, there's Jesus. And so I just want to touch on the example that Jesus demonstrates over and over when it shows us um, a demonstration of what it means to be a meek man, to be a man with power under control. I mean, just think of how powerful Jesus is. He came to earth. He was the one through whom the entire universe was made. Scripture tells us that all authority and power belong to him. Rightly, all authority and power belong to Jesus. Um, Look through the story of Jesus and how his power was demonstrated. Things like, um, because Jesus was the one whom before the demons trembled, When he showed up, the demons trembled and fled. Jesus is the one who spoke to the wind and the waves and the storm saying, peace, be still. And immediately, the sea was calm, the storm stopped. Jesus is the one who could command a dead man lying in a tomb for days to come back to life and to tell Lazarus to come out and Lazarus did come out because of the power of Jesus. Jesus is the same one who, when he was being arrested, when his disciple Peter hacked off the, the ear of the high servant's priest with a sword, Jesus is the one. In all the power that he has, he says this Peter, put away your sword. Don't you know that I could appeal to my father and he would immediately send me? 12 legions of angels. But he didn't. He didn't call in his power. He didn't call for the just thing. He didn't call for justice. He didn't call for God to come and smite them all, send the angels, clear me out. No, he, he didn't. He has all authority, all power, yet he deferred. He left it under control I mean, this is a man. Jesus is a man that be, through him, everything was made. He could, he could muster incredible, incredible power, but he was power under control. God himself, who had no need of keeping power under control, keeps it under control. He doesn't advance his status, his importance. He didn't use his power to force people to respect him, to agree with him, or to believe in him. Jesus was power under control. He used his power for the sake of others. See, this is the true definition of meekness. And so I want to look at least one more week next week at meekness in the kingdom of God and how Jesus demonstrated meekness, power under control, and invites us to do the same. See, Jesus is a man of strength and courage. 
And his power did come out. And we'll talk next week about how sometimes his power did come out and get pretty angry, right? Pretty ornery, pretty sassy. So meekness is not just passivity. We're going to look at that next week because he used his power to stand up for the oppressed, to bring healing and restoration. When someone was being mistreated, he used his power. He knew when to use his power. See, it's power under control. Power under control. That's what Jesus demonstrated demonstrated to us. And do we remember why? Do you remember why Jesus did this? Why he demonstrated his power under control instead of just coming in and saying, listen, y'all, I'm God, serve me, get yourselves right with me. He did it to show his love for us. This is how God showed his love for us, his power under control. When he turned, when we as a people turned our back on God, he could have destroyed us. When Adam and Eve walked away from God, God could have re-engineered the entire human project, couldn't he, right? He had absolute power. He could do anything. Um, God in history could have used his power and authority to even just change the wiring in our brain so we would not have a choice to obey or not obey. Fine, we'll just make him obey. He could have changed the wiring in our brain and always make us obey him. But listen carefully to this statement by Philip Yancey. Power, which God has, right? Power. Power can do everything but the most important thing. It cannot control love. Power can do Everything but the most important thing, it cannot control love. You look at a concentration camp, right, where they have ultimate power. The guards have ultimate power over the prisoners. They can make you do anything they want. Eat human excrement, kill your mother, renounce your God. But there's one thing that those guards, with all their power, never could figure out how to do. They never could figure out how to force people to love them. Because power doesn't equal Love if it's just power. But if you're God and you're writing a story where love is the center of the story, then you have all the power and you will put it under control to demonstrate love because it's a love story and love must be chosen. Love must be chosen. Worship team, will you come? Friends, God demonstrated this love for you and for me. He didn't just say, hey, I want you to be meek. I want you to walk out, you know, forgiving people, sometimes letting them off the hook, um, uh, deferring to others, always controlling your power and never exercising any of it. Um, he didn't just tell us to do that then, and then not demonstrate for us. His entire life and death was a demonstration of his power under control. And he invites us to enter into meekness because he knows It is how we're wired. He knows that it is the path to life. He knows that is the only way that you and I are designed to find life to the full. We've tried the other ways and it isn't satisfying, isn't it? Revenge might even be satisfying when somebody wrongs you for a little bit, but ultimately it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't give us what we're looking for. Winning the political game or the political machine might satisfy for a little while, but in the end, it is empty and it doesn't give us what we're looking for. It doesn't give us the life that's worth living. And so Jesus is who I want to be looking at. I want to fix my eyes on him. 
and look at who he is and how he demonstrates power under control, sometimes using power to defend people, sometimes laying power down. But as we fix our eyes on Jesus, friends, um, we can just be so grateful for him that he demonstrated for you and for me what it looks like to live this out in a very practical way. Is there someone in your life right now who you are tempted to strike back at? Is there maybe a a parent here that your child is just being rebellious and you just want to power over them and make them obey? (laughs) Um, You might get compliance, but you will not find love. Is there a relationship that you're struggling with and you just want to force them to do what you want them to do so everything will be okay? Friends, you might get them to do it, but you will not experience the depth of love. So Jesus, we, we look to you. Will you show us what it looks like to demonstrate love, to demonstrate meekness, the power that you give us to forego it so that we can depend on you to take care of business for us, to win the heart of the loved one that we're estranged from, to bring about the right results in a situation where maybe we got cheated. Jesus, it's in your name. It's in your name that we can grow confidence in your might, in your power, your ability to do anything. And I pray that as we look to you, Jesus, that you will do some things in our heart that inspire us and transform us to lay down our power and follow your way.